Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. I'm Jeannie Warner, and this is Episode 179, Interview with Dr. Marsha Gordon. Welcome, Dr. Gordon. May I call you Marsha? Absolutely, Jeannie. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. Um, You are a professor of film studies at North Carolina State University, and I read a recent fellow at the National Humanities Center and an NEH public scholar, and I had to go look up what an NEH public scholar was, and how cool is that? Yeah, that's, I mean, the reason that this book exists that we're going to be talking about today is because of those fellowships and the time that allowed me for research and writing. So both of those are extraordinary programs. And I'm very fortunate to have had those back to back, which allowed me to write this book in a in a much shorter period of time than it would normally take with my teaching and other research responsibilities. I, I absolutely understand. Everybody, many people have to have a day job and the dreaded day job yes. and suck your both energy and will and time away from you. So good on you. We'll put links for people to look into that. Right. Now, we have talked to a couple film school majors who became screenwriters in Hollywood. What is the difference between that and a film studies major? Tell us a little bit about the the academic side. Sure. Um, So, you know, obviously there's a lot of different ways to approach film. And and I think almost anyone, even if they want to become a filmmaker, should be familiar with kind of the basics of film analysis and film history. So I think in order to make smart moving images, you have to understand what moving images were made before you step out into the world and make your film. So um, it is often the case that even in production focused programs, that there are film studies classes. So um, for example, I regularly teach classes like history of film to 1940 or the musical. I'm doing one uh, class in the fall on Westerns and superhero films. So one looking at a genre history, you know, focusing largely in the mid 20th century and then very contemporary. And so um, film studies really gives us tools to approach uh, thinking critically about uh, moving images that were um, you know, produced and that are produced for the purposes of entertainment and education and all the reasons. But um, at NC State, we do teach production classes, but that is not our focus. So we're not a production school like NYU or USC, um, but we do have students who go on um, to filmmaking careers. And I, I think by and large, they're very grateful that they had kind of a foundation in um, thinking critically, being smart about the way that um, that uh, a kind of aesthetics and form shape a motion picture. I think that's incredibly important in the same way that we've heard many writers say, you want to be a writer, what should I do? Well, you should read. You should read a lot. You should read in your genre. You should read outside your genre. You should you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is my first, um, the book, uh, Becoming the Ex-Wife, um, is my first biography. My last book was about a director named Sam Fuller and his war movies, and it had a lot of um, biography in it. Uh, that book is called Film is Like a Battle- Battleground. Um, but it was not a biography. And this book is a biography. And what I decided to do, um, I've always liked reading biographies, but as soon as I decided I wanted to write this book, I did not read anything but biographies. So I trimmed out every other kind of reading in my life because I wanted 
not only to get the kind of cadence and um, kind of rhythm and um, tone of different kind of biographical approaches in my head, I also wanted to discover what I liked and I didn't like in a biography. So I quickly learned, for example, I did not like the kind of biographies that like, to my mind, made things up like she looked out the window and saw a daffodil blooming and a robin in a nest and decided today was the day she would write the first page of her new novel, you know, things like that, that are speculative. And so, so unless she wrote down, Hey, there, I was looking out the window, saw this daffodil. And I thought, this is it kiddo. And you got it out of one of her letters. That's right. That's right. So that's, so things like that were really important to me, but I think the only way you learn that is by reading in the genre and and a, a wide array, array of approaches too. I love it. And so to give everybody the full title, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. I have to admit, I was one of those that I had never heard of Ursula Parrott before your book. And now it I believe, honestly, it's a history book, and it probably ought to be on women's studies curricula in a whole lot of schools. So this was, you documented everything from the rise of women in the workplace, the effect of wars on marriage precision, um, perception, a lot about reproductive freedom. And what I learned is there is not enough about early women writers. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, um, one of the things that I really loved about writing this book is that it touched exactly uh, on so many issues, right? So I, I, I'm telling the story of one woman's life, but in any life, especially a life that is public and engaged with topical subjects, which Ursula Parrott was a best-selling novelist and short story writer, really from the late 1920s into the 1940s. And she wrote about uh, many things, but she uh, often wrote about career women and divorcees and single mothers. And because of that, she was really engaging with what was happening in the world around her. And in her case, she was from Boston um, originally, and then um, moved to New York when she was uh, just out of college and married and spent the rest of her life basically in Manhattan and then in a country home um, in nearby Connecticut. And and she she really wrote stories about dilemmas that she was experiencing in her life and that she saw happening around her. And so because of that, it, it cracked open this opportunity um, to do precisely what you indicate, GD, which is to explore the kind of historical moment for things like abortion, for things like, uh, you know, women's working lives, um, how women were talking about and thinking about raising children uh, when they were widowed or divorced or, um, you know, more radically decided to have children without a husband and father. So I really loved that part of this book because I'm a researcher at heart and it gave me great pleasure to go down these rabbit holes of of information and then to try to figure out how to distill them into something succinct, right? Because, you know, this is a a book written for a general audience. It's not an academic book. So I wanted it to be very readable and engaging and yet still you know, give people the sense that they were taking away knowledge. Well, I absolutely think you succeeded in that because I found it very engaging and easy to read. But I had an interesting thought that occurred to me as I was reading it. Once upon a time, the statistics for the murder rate in marriage were very high yeah. until it became okay to be a divorcee. Yeah, male or female. So literally, I'm wondering if we all secretly owe Ursula Parrott a great debt for saying, 
yes, we've, she created the term ex-wife, really, ex-husband, and it became okay to have one. And a divorcee was not looked down upon so that life goes on and people stopped killing their spouses. Yeah, that's a very interesting observation. I had not thought about it in those terms. Um, you know, Parrot, she didn't invent the term ex-wife, but she absolutely popularized it. It was credited with doing so. It became kind of an identity category. Um, and she she kind of ushered it in with the publication of her best-selling novel, Ex-Wife, in 1929, um, which I should add was recently republished by McNally Editions. So people can now read it for themselves. And it's a, a wonderful, smart, um, just immensely readable and teachable and topical novel. But um, but I do think that it's fair to say that she's part of a wave of normalization of divorce. And part of her message was we have to we have to tell people that like it's it's not that you enter into a marriage, you know, thinking like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to get a divorce. You enter into it with the best intentions, but it's not the end of the world if the outcome is divorce. And people should not be trapped or paralyzed by bad marriages because of the stigma. And, you know, of course, this is partly an urban privilege, right? Like she's Boston and Right. Um, New York, and then she's spending time in Hollywood. This is, you know, not the Midwest. This is not the South. This is not, this you is know, not rural... small towns anywhere. I exactly. Mean, and so upstate New York has its own, probably even far more rigid rules, but exactly, exactly. And of course, these things are legislated at a state level. So at the time that Parrot was living in the state of New York, um, the only uh, grounds you had for divorce was infidelity. So you had to prove that one or the other spouse had committed an act of infidelity um, in order to get divorced. It didn't matter if there was a brutality or any other kind of neglect. Um, there was only one one ground. So she's also really kind of um, thinking about the institution at a time where a lot of people you know, are discussing uh, in the popular press, in state legislatures, like what, like what is the nature of this institution and what are the good reasons for dissolving it? I enjoyed reading a little bit about her accounts of when she got divorced on the different ones and intolerable cruelty, especially because there's a movie yeah. called Intolerable Cruelty. Yes. <laughs> and then that just brought it forth of saying that, well, she had to got up and say that this spouse abused her terribly, you know, mentally, yeah. emotionally, verbally, et cetera. And you could read through that and say that probably wasn't true, but I understand yeah. that for legal reasons, you had to say that. That's right. That's what it said. Well, and it's why it's why Reno, Nevada becomes a boom town because they oh, yeah. um, had a short residency requirement. So, you know, if you've ever seen the wonderful late 1930s film, The Women, directed by George Cukor about a bunch of women waiting for their divorces and um, uh, making very, very funny jokes about uh, the state of their lives and of the institution and of their husbands and um, uh uh, you know, the, but you did not have to have a reason as long as it was an agreed upon divorce. And so it became an industry. And that's, you know, how Reno, uh, you know, made its made its name and fortune um, in the 1930s with all of this traffic, especially of people from the East who had the you know money to send their, you know, wives basically to Reno for 30 days to take care of the divorce. Well, even marriage was easier there. I mean, I learned 
Reno came on the map for me when I was in high school reading Robert Heinlein's Number of the Beast, and the line was, let's just point this bomb to Reno and sign off. That's all of us go get married. So yeah, Reno, Nevada really was the get married quick, get divorced well, quick. I now see it. Yeah, Nevada. I mean, right? Because Las Vegas, too. That's the the, to this day, the quickie marriage, go to go to Las Vegas and get it done. The sanctity of Britney Spears 30 day marriage is one we still all hold in our hearts. That's here. right. That's right. <laughs> but I, I have to say you helped me open my mind and open my experience to new writers because I may have memorized a lot of Dorothy Parker's poetry because I love her. And yeah. I can get drunk and tell you about the little old lady in lavender silk. But <laughs> a lot of the mothers I was obliged to go look up. And I loved one of your quotes. And this one is something that has been near to a lot of our writers about the topic of what is literature versus what is fantasy, what is science fiction, what is women's fiction. Yeah. And I'm going to remind you of your quote that Widener argued that highbrow writers like, quote, Hemingway and Faulkner wrote about matters that are far removed from most readers' reality. They earned their elite status because their writing was neither relatable nor useful, which is precisely what made it seem like art. And that floored me. Oh, my God, that was great. <laughs> yeah. And I started thinking about that, and it's like, it's true. I, I, dis I actually despise Hemingway. I'm sorry if anybody out there loves him, but, you know. We mock him away, you know, the boy and girl walked together in the rain and they were wet and she was wet and he was wet and they were yes. wet together in the rain. And it was a good rain. <laughs> Who said that's good writing? Um, you just cut out. So can you can you repeat the end of that? Sure. Um, that is the the famous Hemingway mocking that a friend of mine used to do, the boy and girl walked together in the rain, and he was wet, and she was wet, and they were wet together there in the rain, and it was yes. a good rain. And who who decided that was good writing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's such an important question. Really, writing this book and thinking very seriously about Ursula Parrott and the way her books have been out of print since the 1980s. Um, one ex-wife was the only book that was ever republished, you know, post 1950s. Um, uh, and thinking about wh why is that? I think it's such a spectacular novel. It is smart. It is well-written. It is about relevant and ti still timely questions about especially women's lives. And I think that gets to why, um, you know, part of the reason at least why, she has been forgotten. I mean, when I, I just reread The Great Gatsby, thinking about this question of, you know, what is so great about this novel, right? That everybody reads this. I true pondered times. that when I had to read it. Junior <laughs> high school, high school. Call, I mean, I probably read that book 15 times and I read it with ex-wife in mind, Ursula Parrott's 1921, not, not 29 novel. And I thought, this is half the novel to me. Okay. I, I just don't, especially because the women characters are so thin I mean, they just have nothing. This is a novel that's not interested in the female characters at all. And uh, it's about, uh, it's, it's about the past. It's a period piece. And one of the things I love about ex-wife is that it still has relevance today. I mean, there's a, an abortion scene in ex-wife that is so chilling and moving. And I think about the conversations we're having today about abortion in this country and, you know, abortion and birth control were both equally illegal when Ursula Parrott was, you know, sexually active in the 1930s um, in particular. And 
And that she might have died from toxicology brought upon by one of those descriptions of, and I'm not going to go into it here because that's almost too squicky, but oh dear God, that was one of the many ways that they aborted. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, the uh, Carl uh, Rollison recently wrote a review of my book in the New York Sun, and he did something really interesting in it. He compared her to William Faulkner. He's a Faulkner expert and expert. And um, he talks about in his review, the fact that uh, ex-wife and the sound and the fury, like both came out the same year. Um, Parrot and Faulkner had the same publisher. So, you know, I, their, their books are advertised side by side, you know, in 1929. And why is it that Faulkner is so famous? He sold very few books (laughs) when they came out. Parrot sold, you know, 10 times, 20 times, I don't know, 100 times more books than Faulkner, um, if you add them up in the course of a decade. And to think about the reasons why, in terms of the way... I've got got one off the top of my head that I want to bet out there that nobody's thought about. Let's hear it. Okay. This goes also to where suddenly... It took until the 1980s for beer distributors and marketing to realize that women bought the majority of the beer for the household. Mm. Before that time, they they marketed at men. And so there's like, this is a manly beer. Look at us fishing, doing things. And nobody realized that it was, but the women are the ones that do the shopping. So it actually makes entirely more sense to me that her book sold more because, again, women shop more. Yeah. yeah. That's well, <laughs> well, certainly the film industry always targeted women as their primary ticket buyers in this time period. So yeah, that, that question of who's the oh. consumer of the household, I think it definitely slanted towards the female. And then this is also a period of time, as I discuss um, in the book, where women are also entering the workplace and, and getting careers, you know, for really the first time in a wave um, in, in American history. And so not, it's no longer just that, you know, the men earn the money and the women spend it. But now, if they want to, they can earn the money and, and control, you know, all of these avenues of their of their lives. So that's, um, that's part of the the arc of this narrative. But that question of, you know, why is it that a, a novel like like Ex-Wife and a writer like Parrot have been so marginalized? It's a complex, um, it's not just one thing, right? It is, right. Um, it's, it's certainly partly a denigration of any books that were targeted towards women, which her books were. Um, you know, it's definitely a case of um, she died penniless and obscure and nobody was tending to her legacy. And she, um, you know, her papers aren't anywhere. Nobody... Nobody was reading her and saying like, this is important work. And so, you know, one of the things that I really believe my role is now is to try to be an advocate, a posthumous advocate for her at this moment in history and urge people, you know, to take a look at something they've been denied by virtue of the nature of Canon's formation and and publishing. I was musing, you brought up something that affected her popularity and her ability to be published and write that we haven't talked much about before also the hayes act mm-hmm. and yeah. i know you know you're a film studies person so you have yeah. it for our audience out there the hayes act similar to comics code i mean we we know a little bit how comics code affected a lot of the writers because of you know, you can't show blood spurting out of a corpse anymore that, no, we have to be moralistic. 
and the Hayzack and censorship and how that started saying, we don't talk about or show or mention or deal with abortions in any way in movies is huge. They well, it's, it's not lot, just, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the production code nicknamed the Hayes code, um, really gets uh, codified in 1934. And so Parrot comes to Hollywood, you know, Parrot's book is published in 1929. Um, uh, the Divorcee comes out in 1930. That stars Norma Shearer in her only Academy Award winning role. That's the first of um, what would be nine, um, I believe, nine uh, film adaptations of Parrot's work. And um, it just so happens that she comes to Hollywood and she's working as a screenwriter in New York and in Hollywood at a time when there is increased scrutiny of the content of movies. And she was she was very honest and outspoken. She talked about her divorces. She talked about raising her son on her own. She talked about things like struggling with weight gain and um, using kind of food as a as a salve for um, depression and loneliness at times in her life and, you know, having to kind of fight against unhealthy habits. So she, she didn't have much of a filter. And, and, and I think she came to believe that she could contribute as a screenwriter to the culture, to a kind of opening up of conversations in the culture in particular about, you know, women's navigating the modern world, but, you know, you could only do so much, right? Because Hollywood had to protect itself. And that censorship was internal. It's not the government censoring the film industry. That's the industry saying we need to start censoring our own product or the government is going to come in and censor it. So (laughs) it's, it's all about follow the money. It's all about how do we, you know, how do we push boundaries as far as we can without getting um, scrutinized and censored. Um, we want to keep people buying tickets at the box office. Um, so we've got to keep things like a little bit, a little bit racy, but, um, but a lot by implication. And so um, there's really a, a shift before 1934 and after 1934 and Parrot straddles both of those. So the pre-code, as we call them, films that were made from her works before 1934 definitely have a raciness and an edge that the films um, adapted after them um, did as well, did not have, sorry. And for those of us that do love history, it was the 20s and probably the roaringness of the 20s that there were a lot of states that did start pushing um, censorship bills. So for those of us really grumpy about citizen, I mean censorship going on today, I just want to say, hang tight, baby, it's not terribly new. Uh, yeah. Well, also, you know, what they did is that and this was another reason for Hollywood creating this code that everyone, you know, had to adhere to was the state censorship boards would literally take film prints and cut them, like take out the racy scenes. And so, you know, some states, Ohio was a notoriously strict state would cut. And if you're just cutting out parts of films, then they become incoherent. Right. They're not worried about the plot. They're worried about a negligee. And so so this the Hayes Code was also like, it's better if we handle this and we're trying to, you know, to kind of figure out a a a place where everybody can be satisfied. Um, I mean, it's, a you know, an illusion. Um, and of course, you're not going to make everyone happy. But you know, it was the kind of best solution they could come up with at the time. Do you ever sit and do a little bit of armchair psychology analysis? Because I read this and Ursula struck me as, I think she had a little bit of a bipolar disorder. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, mean, I, the, the I would, way you describe I would hesitate. Her, you know, yeah, I would hesitate to do that only because, you know, such 
such kind of a diagnosis. For, I mean, first off, I am not in a position in terms of my <laughs> professional training to make such a diagnosis. Um, I do think she was eccentric and erratic. I do know that she struggled with alcohol um, her entire life. She, if you think about the culture of the 1920s, in a place like New York City, the speakeasies and women trying to hold their own with men because it was the thing to do. Um, this was a time and place where people really kind of lost control of their sensibilities. And it set up a lifelong pattern for her where when she was struggling, she would drink too much and then try to stop drinking. So I know she struggled with alcoholism. Um uh, I, I just I, always view that all of the we we talk about it. We explore more of brains today. And there's the when I say that we do it now and look at it, and I want to look at it back and saying that all of the strains, everything was there throughout history. Yeah, they talk about Alexander the Great had moments of moroseness of laying around and unable to contemplate the world, and yeah, it, it humanizes people to a certain extent, but yeah. But and I, and I do think, I mean, I, I say in the book that I think she would have been better off now. Um, yeah. She predicted that women would be better off in the future. So this is not just me saying that, but, yeah. but I agree with her because I think we have an awareness and an openness about um, dealing with some of these issues that were not in place um, and I also think that she um, she truly was ahead of her time in terms of wanting to talk about some of these issues that were like, they were not polite conversations to be having. And she really tried to push the boundaries of that in um, in many of her stories and also in her interviews um, with the press. And so I think I think her um, kind of her her place as a little bit of an outlier in the culture Um you know, of maybe being too radical. And maybe that's, you know, partly where like those kind of extremist views and, and um, kind of living life to its fullest behavior, which, you know, was not atypical again for her milieu. Think about the way that Fitzgerald drank himself to the ground, um, Hemingway, you know, mm -hmm. and the mental illness that they struggled with in their personal lives and in their relationships with other people. I mean, I just think these problems have been with us a long time, um, but I would not, you know, hazard a guess as to what her particular issues were. That's just impossible from, from this distance, given the, the lack of, of information I have too. you know, as I talk about in the book, her, you know, nobody kept her papers. So I am um, grateful that I had as many letters as I had of hers to read because her agent and one of her lovers saved all of the letters um, that she wrote to them. But I'm missing big parts of her life and her story. And those are often, um, you know, those are from the, the later and the darker and harder period of her life. And, and maybe if I had more insights into that period, I would feel more comfortable with kind of understanding her psychological state. That's fair. I, and like it's, it was, you're right, she was traveling through Greenwich at a time where, you know, you had cross-dressing, you had a lot of gender non-conformity, queerness yeah. wasn't really a taboo there. It was just, I look at Hollywood that caused, you know, that forced basically some of their stars to get married to people of the opposite gender so that again, they wouldn't get caught up in some of the laws and indecency, et cetera, that they called criminal. So yeah. It's such an interesting time of, you know, Rudolph, we all know Rudolph Valentino was gay. <laughs> yeah, the the history of of uh, of Hollywood and um, trying to manage uh, their stars and their identities, yeah. it, it goes so beyond just sexuality. I was just 
um, reading some about Kim Novak in relationship to Vertigo and um, kind of the manufacturing of her image and her um, relationship with Sammy Davis Jr., which the studio wanted, you know, like, no, you cannot even hang out with a friend who is um, African-American when you are Kim Novak, because that's going to tarnish your reputation. And but that kind of exertion of control, that's a, like a whole other subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. It is. What are you looking for as an outcome of this book? You've you've brought her into the limelight. You've talked about Ursula Parrott. What do you hope people get out of it and bring through it? Oh, Jeannie, I, I so, I want more than anything people to read her writing. And so the fact that you can go buy ex-wife easily right now. I mean, when I started researching this book, I had to go on eBay and find a copy on eBay of a, you know, a 1930, I think, edition of ex-wife in order to read it. And now you can just pop to your local independent bookseller and buy the McNally editions um, version. And uh, to read it and to talk about it and to post about it on your social media. And if you're a teacher, teach it in your classes. I mean, this is an opportunity to bring Ursula Parrott into the conversation of what writing was like in the jazz age and um, to put her alongside Fitzgerald and to think about the things that she brings to that conversation and to our imagination and understanding of that decade that are not in other writings being taught from that period. And so um, I hope that more of her work will be republished. I mean, I'm actively trying to have conversations with people about a, maybe a collection of her short stories and her nonfiction. Um, she wrote one serial in particular that is just phenomenal about a woman screenwriter between New York and L.A. And it's just it's <laughs> so good. autobiographical there. Yeah, well, she does. I mean, she writes from her life that much. I know. So um, so I really so I hope more than anything that people read her and teach her and that, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, um, you know, she is part of our. Uh, kind of cultural memory of this time period instead of, um, you know, not having, I mean, uh, nobody had heard, I mean, when I started writing this book and I would say, I'm writing a book about Ursula Parrott, not one person, not one person said, oh, I know who she is, right? So I hope in 10 or 20 years that somebody could mention her name and people go, oh yeah, you know, oh, I read that book, Ex-Wife, you know, in my high school American literature class. So. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I mean, it, I'm trying to think of how many times you're right. We had to read The Great Gatsby and The Red Badge of Courage and, yep. and Grapes of Wrath. I'm like, hey, we could use a little bit more variety. First of all, I can't ever think right now of a woman author that we were obliged to read in primary school. Yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big problem. And I would say it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. But I, I really, I, I think that it's possible. And I think that, um, that I have confidence in the strength of the novel, I wouldn't urge people to read it if I thought they would go, eh, that's just, I don't know, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it is powerful. Um, it is, uh, uh, it is revelatory of a time and a place and a set of issues that we can kind of trace a through line from 1929 to 2023, um, kind of over and over again, especially things about like 
work-life balance. I mean, it's all kind of in the roots of all of these things that we're still dealing with today, um, divorce and, you know, um, uh, sexual harassment, uh, like they're there in that novel. And so it's a great conversation opener. Um, and I think it would just, yeah, it would, it would enhance anyone's, uh, uh, bookshelves and nightstands and, and, uh, kind of thinking about this period of time. It, well, we can give it a try. So everyone definitely should go out to read a copy of Ex-Wife by Ursula Parrott. And that is republished again, you say, by what publishing company? Uh, McNally Editions. So McNally widely, Edition. widely available. Excellent. And I think while you're at it, you should also read Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott by Dr. Marsha Gordon. Thank you, <laughs> Jeannie. I, I think this is important, I said, because we do not study history, we are doomed to repeat it. But it's not just, I think it's important that all of these women's stories through history, that the women we learn about, not just their perspective from male writers, but the perspective of women from female writers is important. And I think that that both in movies and in writing is something that we need to preserve and enhance for the latest generations. Well, thank you. And um, I, I say this very sincerely. If you read my book, if you read Ursula Parrott's book, I'm very easily findable because I'm a professor at North Carolina State University. And um, I would love to hear what you think if you would like to shoot me an email after you read it. Well, I will put your email along with links of how they can buy all these wonderful things on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Marsha. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Jeannie. I really appreciate it, too. And I, like I said, I'll gush a little bit. I loved the book. I think anybody who has an interest in history, the turn of the century was a very interesting time. And women's place and women's work is not what we've been taught. And here's a way to go find out what it was like for real. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are performed by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, and honorable mention, I'm just going to say right now to all of the delightful organizations like NEH Public Scholarships that create public scholar grants that help people write books. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>